you can open to Luke 16. That's where we're going to spend our time together. When you practice faithful teaching in a church, and for us that word uh, is attached to another word, uh, which is expository. Okay, So when we say faithful teaching, we mean expository teaching. And if you don't know what that is, it's really just when you go verse by verse through the Scriptures and you allow the context of the Scriptures uh, to guide you as you teach so that um, you're not taking things out of context and kind of sucking a verse out with a vacuum and then uh, trying to build a whole theology off of it. Instead, looking at the Scriptures in their historical context and in the context of the original language and everything else that's going on in the Bible around it. When you do that, um, which we believe in here, you are going to hit a wide array of subjects. And we arrive this morning to Luke 16, uh, verses 19 through 31, which is all about the subject of hell. And uh, it's not an easy subject. It's a difficult one. There's people that we know and love that do not know Jesus, and so it's difficult to talk about because of that. It's difficult because there's people we know and love that maybe have passed away, and we're fairly confident that they did not know Jesus, and it's hard to even comprehend being separated from them for all of eternity, much less what they would experience for all of eternity as those that do not know the Lord. But God has been gracious to give us the Scriptures so that we can understand uh, the doctrine of hell, the reality of it, and we are going to dig into it this morning. The Pew Research Center put out a study, getting some, some weird illumination happening uh, up here. Uh, the Pew Research Center put out a study last year about heaven and hell, and they wanted to know how many Americans believed in each one of them. And 73% of all United States adults said that they believed in heaven which is kind of amazing, honestly, if you really think about even just that. Because a lot of times we're intimidated to go and share our faith, right? We think that someone is just going to like laugh at us, mock us, ridicule us, and they may do that. Uh, But what the statistics would tell us is that more often than not, you're actually going to go and share your faith with somebody who believes in heaven. And they probably would like to know how to get there. And so I hope that that statistic encourages you this morning. 73% of all U.S. adult Americans uh, believe in heaven. That's a motivation to go and share with people. Uh, But get this, 73% believe in heaven, only 62% say they believe in hell, more than 10% less. You say, okay, well, that's outside of the church. Well, that number's got to change in the church, right? I mean, certainly, it's got to change in the church. Well, the same study found that 93% of Protestant Christians in America believe in heaven. Now, I don't know what the other 7% are doing. Okay, I I don't know what version of Christianity they're practicing where there is no heaven. Like, not even Unitarians do that. So I I don't know what they're doing. It's very odd, but uh, those are the numbers, okay? But much like the world, in the church, when you ask people about hell, 84% of Protestant believers said they believe in hell, about 10% less. So why are there all these people inside and out of the church who want to believe in heaven, but they do not want to believe in hell? If I had to guess, I would think there are a couple of reasons. I would say that number one, they don't really understand who God is. And more specifically, I think that they've created a God in their own image, a God that is like them. 
And they know that they don't feel like they would ever have the right to send someone to hell. I certainly don't feel like I have the right to condemn someone to hell in and of myself. And so they would think, having made a God in their own image, God probably isn't like that either. He's not going to send someone to hell. That's harsh. That is not fair. Maybe they think that. Uh, They don't stop and think about the sinlessness of God. They don't think about the position of righteous judgment that God has on his throne. They just assume he's pretty much like us. Or they don't understand what sin is. They tend to see sin from a human perspective. As long as you're not hurting anybody, as long as what you're doing isn't too bad, doesn't break any laws, you know, it's certainly not deserving of eternal death. They don't realize that God is holy, that God will judge according to his perfect law. They don't stop to think about if God didn't judge according to his perfect law, what would that say about his character? That would mean that he himself is not just, that he would cease to be holy. The reality is, is God will never fail to be holy. He will always uphold his law. If we do not judge ourselves by our own ethics, and we judge ourselves by God's law instead of societal standards, then it's going to stop our mouths. We're going to realize we cannot justify our sin and we cannot justify our rebellion before God because the law reveals that while you might be a great citizen here on earth, we are actually guilty in heaven's court. We haven't loved God the way we're supposed to love God. We have not worshipped God the way we are supposed to worship God. We do not honor his name the way that we are supposed to honor his name. We do not find rest in him the way that we are supposed to find rest in him. We do not honor our mother and father uh, the way that we should. Certainly no one here has a 100% uh, performance record in that area. And if we start going down the list of God's commandments... And determining whether or not we are innocent or guilty, if we're honest with ourselves, we are thieving, adulterous, covetous liars. And if God judges us accordingly to his law, we're going to be found guilty. And if we don't understand how awful our sin is, then yes, hell will not make a lot of sense to us. But if we do not sugarcoat our sin, if we don't try to domesticate our sin, and we look at it as the treason against God that it is, we'll realize our failure to honor him, our failure to love our neighbors, it leaves us deserving of the wrath of God. Jesus knew well the dangers of hell. He talked about it. He warned people about it. In fact, Jesus talked a lot more about hell than he talked about heaven. And so for those Christians that are running around saying, well, I believe in hell, or I believe in heaven, but I don't believe in hell, you don't believe like Jesus. And you don't talk like Jesus. Jesus talked a lot more about hell than the Old Testament prophets who came before him. It was a matter of priority in his preaching ministry to warn people, to help them understand it, to help them avoid it. When I say help them avoid it, not merely with his words, because biblical love, which we're going to talk about this Wednesday, agape love, it's love in action, it's sacrificial love. So it wasn't just with his words he wanted to help them to avoid it. He laid down his life and he died for sin in the place of treasonous sinners so that they would never know the hell that he was warning about. So this morning, we get a parable from Jesus to teach us about the reality of hell. And and some have tried to argue this is not a parable. 
that this is a true story, the story of rich man, uh, the rich man here in, in Lazarus. But I, I would say there's just too many elements in the story that really don't make sense uh, when it comes to the rest of the, the Bible for this to be a real account. Like you have someone in hell seeing into heaven. We, we don't have any evidence in the scriptures that that is something that happens. You have somebody in hell actually talking to someone in heaven. We have no evidence from the scriptures that's something that can happen. In fact, we would have evidence to the contrary. Uh, outer darkness doesn't really sound like uh, a place where you're going to be talking to someone who's in heaven. You have angels carrying a man's body to heaven. Again, this is not something we see anywhere else in Scripture. So uh, these are poetic elements of storytelling Jesus is using to uh, get a very real spiritual truth across to us and to help us understand what happens after we die. So lock in this morning and listen. This might be the most important sermon, and I know I'm saying this in January, but it might be the most important sermon you hear out of me all year. Because wherever you are going to spend your eternity is a whole lot longer than the time that you have here on earth. And so it's important that we truly consider what Jesus is teaching in this text. Luke 16, I'll read for us in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment... He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us And you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. We have two main characters in this parable. You have Lazarus and you have a rich man. You'll notice from the very start that they are living incredibly different lives. The rich man is wealthy. Verse 19 gives us some clues to just how wealthy he is. He's clothed in purple which means that his outer garments were dyed with Tyrian purple dye. It was very expensive dye because it had to be extracted from the mucus of sea snails, which you can imagine in the ancient world that was a very arduous process. So if somebody actually had this dye, which came at such a premium, it meant that you were either rich or you were royal or you were both. So he's got this purple clothing that tells us he is incredibly rich, would have been one of the richest people um, in, in the ancient world. Uh, he's wearing fine linen, which is likely a reference to Egyptian cotton. 
The climate of Egypt allows the cotton fibers to grow longer, so it's always been a finer material, and in the ancient world, it was a fabric mainly possessed by the rich. Nowadays, you and I could leave here, we could drive down the Bed Bath and Beyond, we could get ourselves some Egyptian cotton today, okay? Like, people in the middle class can get themselves Egyptian cotton, but that is not the way that it was in uh, Jesus' time in the first century. To have Egyptian cotton meant that, that you were living high on the hog. Lazarus, on the other hand, is a poor man. The Greek word for poor uh, that is used in verse 20 is tohas, which means extreme poverty to the point of begging. So we're not talking about kind of being down and out, barely making ends meet. We're talking about being the poorest of the poor. In fact, when it says in verse 20, and at his gate was laid a poor man, that means that somebody probably compassionately picked him up and said, I'm going to take him down to the rich man's estate and lay him at the gate there because then at least as the rich man comes and goes and as his friends come and go, this man would have a chance to beg and get something. You can also tell their lives are different because of their relationship to food. The rich man is feasting sumptuously every day, it says in verse 19. Lazarus, on the other hand, would just like to be fed with the crumbs from the rich man's table. That's not even leftovers, right? Leftovers is something you're intentionally setting aside for later. This is the stuff that falls and that you don't even notice that it falls. The vacuum gets it later. The dog gets it later. Whatever. You drop it. You don't even notice. You don't think twice. And poor Lazarus is just like, if I could just get the forgotten crumbs from the table, well, then I'd be happy. They're also different in, the term, in, in terms of uh, suffering. We, we have no evidence of suffering in the rich man's life. Even in his death, he just dies and he's buried. Right? There's no evidence that he is really experiencing hardship. But Lazarus, he's got sores all over his body. And the dogs come and lick the sores, which would have been an appalling detail to Jesus' listeners. We live in a culture where people let their dogs lick their faces. Personally, I've never really understood the move, but you do what you do. right? Um, everybody's different. In Jesus' day, all right, nobody was keeping a, a teacup Yorkie in their house, okay? Dogs were not domesticated. They roamed the streets. They carried diseases. Um, they, had, they, they, they ate trash. They roamed the streets, and, and they were scavengers. That's what they were. They were street hyenas, if you want to think of them that way. When, when I've gone down to El Salvador, and we've gone on mission trips there with our church here, um, there's dogs that roam the streets in El Salvador, and, and you don't you know, go up and, and rub them behind the ears. You stay away. They're, they're scavengers. You don't know what's going on with them. So nobody touched dogs in Jesus' day, much less let a dog come and lick their sores. But then the fortunes flip. They both die. And you see how the fortunes flip in verses 22 and 23. The rich man dies. He finds himself buried and, and then in Hades. Hades refers to where the unsaved spend their time until the final judgment. So this is where people who do not know the Lord Jesus and do not have a mediator for their sin, and they die, this is where they're going to go until Jesus returns and the final judgment occurs. So in Revelation 20, it says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. 
And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. And listen to this, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so after the final judgment, Hades and all who were in it will be thrown into the lake of fire. And they will spend their eternity in this place called hell that we are learning about this morning. Hades is the holding place until the final judgment, and then the eternal destination is hell. Lazarus, on the other hand, dies, and he's carried by angels to Abraham's side. Uh, Some translations call this Abraham's bosom, and, and more often than not, if you hear this talked about in like a theological conversation or in a theology book, It's referred to as Abraham's bosom. Uh, This is the place of the righteous. This is the opposite of Hades. It's the home of saints who have passed away and is where they will remain until Jesus returns and he sets up the new earth. It would have been shocking news to the Pharisees that are listening to Jesus teach here. Remember, the, the, the Pharisees loved their money. Jesus told them, You cannot serve God in money. You cannot have two masters. And then last week, they were making fun of him. They were mocking him. Well, now they hear that this rich man who lives the life that they long to live and that many of them may have even lived, though most Pharisees were middle class, they hear that this man ends up in Hades. Lazarus, on the other hand, who the Pharisees spend their entire ministry and I use that term ministry uh, very loosely, they spend their entire ministry avoiding people like Lazarus. They wanted nothing to do with people like Lazarus. They find out that he is at Abraham's side. He sits with Abraham, the father of faith, in the place of the righteous. This would have been scandalous in their minds. They would have been infuriated by Jesus' story here. You also see that now Lazarus is not the one who's doing the begging, is he? Now the rich man is begging. Lazarus used to just long for crumbs from the rich man's table, but now the rich man just wants a little drop of water from Lazarus' finger. Lazarus used to beg. Lazarus used to suffer. Now the rich man is begging. The rich man is in anguish. And then Lazarus is just gone. We don't hear from him anymore. After verse 25, Lazarus is out of the story. He is enjoying glory at Abraham's side. But the rich man continues to plead. In verses 27 and 28, what he wants is for Lazarus to go to his father's house and to warn his father and his brothers. This is what he desires. And Abraham says, no, they've got Moses and the prophets. And if they listen to God's word, they're not going to end up in the same place of torment. They won't end up in Hades. And the man tries again in verse 30. Hey, just if you send Lazarus, though, he's a dead man. So if a man comes back from the dead, well, then they'll have to listen. And I love how Abraham points to the sufficiency of Scripture in the passage, right? He's like, no, the Bible's enough. The, the, the prophets and Moses are enough. If they're not going to listen to 
the prophets and Moses. It doesn't matter if somebody comes back from the dead. And, and by the way, this is sound logic, considering the fact that Jesus is going to resurrect and many of the Pharisees listening to him in this moment will still deny him and oppose him. And that's it. That's the parable. When it comes to interpretation, this honestly is not a complicated text. This is not one where you need to get out a whiteboard and have all sorts of diagrams to try to figure out what's going on. It is straightforward, but it is difficult to grasp because the lessons that it teaches are not easy to take in. If it were easy to take in, then we would not have less people believing in hell outside and inside of the church. We would not have less preachers talking about hell. Preachers who are not expository preachers, who do not go verse by verse through the text, rarely say, we're going to do a sermon series on hell during the month of June. You just don't hear that. People tend to avoid it. It's difficult to absorb. It's sobering. It demands life change, and many would rather run than deal with what Jesus is actually saying. And so I just want to give us two lessons from the parable this morning uh, to spend the rest of our time on. Two lessons, because I don't want the simple message to get convoluted with five points or whatever. So I, I just went with two. And, and these are not going to be hard lessons to understand, but, but they're hard to accept. Lesson number one, all roads lead to two destinations. All roads lead to two destinations. This parable makes it abundantly clear that despite all the different paths that seven billion people on the earth are taking this morning, they're all going to end up in one of two places when it's said and done. Everybody will end up in heaven or they will end up in hell. Hebrews 9 verse 27 says, just as it is, just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Some say that all religions lead to the same end. Well, that's right in a sense. It's right in the sense that everybody, no matter their religion, will end up in one of two places, heaven or hell. We are born, we live, we die, and then we face God in judgment and we go to one of those two places. And let's be very clear with how we understand the parable this morning, because I think that we could get it backwards. The rich man doesn't go to hell because he's rich. There's not a shred of evidence in the entirety of the scriptures that being rich is a sin, and that being rich will send you to hell. Now, we know that riches bring along with them some spiritual hurdles that can make it difficult to surrender your life to the authority of God's sovereignty, to surrender your life to his commands, to surrender your life to his lordship. We know that. But the rich man is not in hell because he wore Tyrian dyed clothes or because he slept on Egyptian cotton. He didn't even go to hell because he didn't care for the poor. It's part of the problem, but it's not the entirety of the problem. It's symptomatic of the bigger problem. The reason the rich man is buried and ends up in Hades instead of Abraham's side is because he does not rely upon the help of God for salvation. That's why the rich man is in Hades. 
And we know this because of the whole of Scripture. We, we, again, don't see teaching the Bible where riches equals eternal damnation or where fancy clothes equals eternal damnation. But what we see in the Bible is teaching that sin separates you from God and that if you do not receive God's grace, that sin will separate you from Him forever. There's actually a clue in Lazarus' name as to why Lazarus is at Abraham's side and the rich man is in Hades. The rich man doesn't get a name in the parable, which might be a little hint to us that he is not known by God because of his sin. But Lazarus does get a name. It's a Hebrew name, and it means whom God helps. So just like the rich man doesn't go to hell simply because he was rich, Lazarus doesn't go to heaven simply because he's poor. Poverty does not equal eternal glory any more than riches equals eternal damnation. He goes to heaven because God helps him. We can assume that Lazarus was humbly, uh, that, that he has humbly received the help that God has offered, that he has placed his faith and his trust in the Lord and in the Lord's undeserved, compassionate love for his salvation and for his forgiveness. This is what everyone must do. Everyone must humbly receive the help that God is offering. Everyone must place their faith and their trust in the Lord. Everyone must repent of their sin and stop relying on themselves and turn to God in faith and rely on His grace for salvation. Because as we stated earlier, our sin is a treason against the nature of an eternal God and the punishment for that sin is proportionate to our crimes. A little bit ago, we had our, our brother David Chin come up and read, and he was joking with me before, and he said, man, it's a, kind of a heavy text Joel gave me to read up here um, this morning. It is. It, it's tough stuff there in Isaiah. It, 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 it's very vivid imagery to describe our sin before a holy God. But we need to realize just how repugnant our sin is before his throne. And when Jesus died on the cross for sinners, he suffered the punishment that we deserve, meaning he suffered as if he had committed the spiritual treason against the Father. He suffered as if he was the one that could not worship God the way that, uh, that, that we are called to worship God. He suffered as if he was the one who didn't love the Father, as if he was the thieving, lying, adulterous, covetous, blasphemer. It doesn't feel right to even have Jesus' name in a sentence with those words. But he got on a cross and he suffered for that sin. He bore our hell at Calvary. And as you repent of your sin and you put your trust in in his saving work, right? He forgives and he is good and he is just to do it. Because the sin has been paid for. But if you don't receive God's gift of salvation in His Son, Jesus, then your treasonous sin still must be paid for. God, as a just and holy judge of all human souls, will judge you according to His law. If Christ has not absorbed your punishment and and died in your place, then you will be the one to receive your punishment for sinning. And this is what hell is. It is the place where sinners receive punishment for their sinning. I cannot comprehend it. 
I comprehend the logic of it. But I struggle to wrap my mind around the reality of suffering forever, anguish forever, punishment forever. It's hard to really absorb that. And yet I know this. The reason that hell exists is because of the sinfulness of sin against a holy God. And that's where I say I comprehend the logic of it. If it did not exist, then the sinfulness of sin would not be punished. And then God would not be holy. And so when we think about the doctrine of hell, we don't apologize for it. We speak in the right tone about it, but we don't apologize for it. And in fact, we should be saying praise be to God that He is holy and just. That He does not let sin go unchecked. That He is a judge of sin. That He is a punisher of sin. But we also, again, must warn people through tears that they must repent. If you are here this morning you don't know the Lord Jesus, you must become like Lazarus. You've got to humble yourself and confess your sin and turn away from it and receive the help of God that He is offering to you. Because you will end up in heaven with all the other Lazaruses who received His help and His grace if you do repent and you do put your trust in Him. But if you do not, you will end up in hell with everyone else who has resisted His help and everyone else who has resisted His grace. This life is not forever, and one day it ends. And there's only two landing spots for your eternity. The second lesson that we learn here, not only will everyone spend eternity in one of two destinations, there is an impassable chasm between heaven and hell. We see this. Right? The rich man is pleading with Abraham, just a, a drop of water, just the opportunity for his family to be told about the dangers of hell. And Abraham's answers are no, and no, and no. No to the water, no to the ending of anguish, no to the warning of his family, not once but twice. And do you know what that tells us? It tells us exactly what Abraham has said to the man in verse 26, that a great chasm has been fixed. Hell is a permanent place and an eternal place. I mentioned that Jesus is the person in the Bible who talks the most about hell. Here's how he talked about it. He describes it as a fiery furnace with weeping and gnashing of teeth in Matthew 13. He described it as a place of outer darkness in Matthew 22, verse 13. He called it a place of destruction in Matthew 7. None of this sounds bearable. But then you add his commentary in Matthew 25, talking about the duration of hell. When he says, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Ionios is the Greek word there for eternal. It means without end. It means to never cease, ever. So when Jesus talks about heaven and hell, he talks about it in the sense of forever life and forever punishment. It's not temporary. Hell is not a place that you go to have your sins um, punished out of you and then you get to go to heaven. Purgatory is not a biblical concept. It is forever life and it is forever punishment. And that's it. He goes on in, in Mark 9. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter 
the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, listen, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It is a place where you suffer the effects of death forever without dying. A place where the fire burns but it never goes out. And there's not going to be any plea you can design that's going to engineer your escape. Right? That, that's clear from this text. There was no plan the rich man was going to come up with that was going to change his eternal destination. The scriptures are sufficient in the here and now to give you the information that you need to be saved. So there's not going to be any pleading of ignorance. You've had enough signs. The Messiah has come and he has resurrected and he has ascended into heaven and he has promised that he will come again. There's no more begging for signs. We've gotten the greatest sign God will ever give us and that is Jesus. Heaven is for those who believe what God said in his word and have acted upon it. Hell is for those who do not believe and do not act upon it. And once your life ends, you are judged. You're in glory or you're in damnation, and there will be no changing of addresses. It is done. I think you have to recognize that this morning. And your opportunity to respond to the gospel is a finite opportunity. You don't have forever. You do not have forever to believe what the Bible says about God. You do not have forever to believe what the Bible says about your sin. You do not have an infinite amount of opportunities to repent of your sin. You need to believe today that God gave his only son in order to die for your sin. You need to believe today that the son of God resurrected from the grave. You need to believe today that your sin is evil and agree with God about that. You need to turn away from your sin today. You need to trust in God's son today. You need to ask for forgiveness today and he will give it today. Praise God. But your opportunity to believe these things lives and dies with the breath in your lungs. At some point, Jesus returns or you die, and then it's too late. And so you cannot take any hearing of the gospel for granted. Every time you hear it, realize it could be your last time hearing it, your last opportunity to believe. You must take that opportunity before it is too late. I want to say something sad to you this morning as we close it's probably the saddest thing that I'm ever going to say to you as your pastor I can't think of a sadder thing I'll say most people will end up in hell most people will end up in hell you say how can you say that because this is what the Bible tells us the Bible is clear in Matthew 7 verse 13 enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. So when the Bible talks about those who are going to heaven, it uses language like few and narrow, but when it talks about those that are going to hell, it uses words like many and broad. In Luke 13, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And Jesus responds by saying, strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter. And will not be able. Most people are not going to look to Christ for salvation. Most people are fine to say that they believe one thing and do another. 
Most people will be controlled by their lust and think that their sin is natural and that God understands. Most people will bank on the fact that since they are good by the standards of the society that they live in, they must be good with God. And I urge you this morning not to be like most people. Now here's the other thing we have in the Scriptures. And this excites me. This is why we do this. This, this, um, this gets the blood flowing through my veins. We have these dire warnings, these grave warnings about hell, but the Bible is also a book of invitation. It's a book of invitation to sinners. Isaiah 1, we heard some hard words from Isaiah earlier in the service, but Isaiah 1, come now let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. I love that. I love that the Lord says, come now, let us reason together. I love in Matthew 11 when Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I love how the Bible ends with invitation. In Revelation 22, the Spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. So the Bible is a book of warning, but simultaneously it is a book of invitation. And yes, it warns that most will choose destruction. Most will pay for the consequences of that choice for all of eternity. But it invites you to be one of the few who agree with God and turn away from your sin and place your devotion at the loving feet of Jesus. And so hear the lessons of Jesus this morning. You will end up in heaven or hell. Once you do, your destination is permanent. Eternity is a very long time. And yet he is inviting you in. And it might be your last opportunity to be invited in. So today repent. And today believe. The band's going to come back up here in just a moment and lead us in a a final song. But I want to tell you how to respond. First of all, I want you to know that if you want to become a Christian this morning, whether you're watching at home or you're in this room, that you do not need a pastor there. Though one of our pastors would love to talk with you and would love to lead you to the Lord Jesus. That wherever you're at right now, you don't have to wait for me to stop talking. You can say, I've heard enough out of this guy today. I'm convinced. And so right now, in in the quiet of your heart, confess your sin to God. Agree with God about your sin, that it is evil, that it is treason against Him, that it is deserving of the punishment of hell. And then put your trust in Him. Put your faith in Him. Tell Him that you believe. Tell Him that you believe that His Son died for you. Tell him that you believe that his death on your behalf was enough to pay for your sins. Tell him that you believe that he resurrected from the dead, which proves he is Lord, and that you want him to be your Lord for the rest of your life. When you're repenting, what you're saying to God is, I'm not going to run my life anymore, you're going to run my life. You saved me, you redeemed me, it belongs to you. Give your life to Jesus this morning and be saved. And then I want you to grab me. One of our pastors will be at the Meet the Pastor table. I think it's going to be me today. You can grab me. I would love to talk to you about it. 
if, if you're, you're talking to a pastor, if you're like, man, it's just, that's just a big step. You're, just, you're sitting down with the reverend. It's a big step, all right? Then go to our connection corner. Talk to one of those folks. Or if you have a friend that you know is a strong Christian, reach out to them and tell them. But you need to tell someone once you become a believer. And you're going to want to. And so I, I'm calling on you today. Repent and believe. I think I also have to say to us this morning, as a church that is wanting to reach out to our community, this is our motivation to preach the gospel and to share the gospel, that people would not go to hell, that souls would not go to hell, but they would spend their eternity in heaven, not just for their benefit, though it will be great for them to be in the presence of the love of the Lord for all of eternity, but for the benefit of God, for His glory, for the glory of His name. We want to see people in heaven worshiping him the way that he wants to be worshiped for all of eternity. We want to take more souls with us. And so, in one sense, we understand our hearing of the gospel could be our last opportunity, but also understand that when you have the opportunity to share the gospel with someone, that you might be the last one that shares with them. And so take every opportunity to preach the gospel to people. Do I believe in the sovereignty of God when it comes to salvation? Absolutely. Do I believe that God is going to save who he's going to save? I absolutely believe that. I think the scriptures are clear about that. But I also read a Bible that tells me that he wants to send us out to go and do the work. And what does it say about our souls if we're not willing? And so obediently take every opportunity you have to preach and to share the gospel. And then pray like an evangelist. Pray for those that you share the gospel with. Pray for those you want to share the gospel with. Right now as we close, uh, I'm going to pray in, in, I'm going to pray specifically for our Upward Basketball program, which our season started yesterday. And starting next week at halftime, people are going to be hearing the gospel every single week. And so we're going to be praying that they would take the opportunity to respond. So let's go to the Lord together right now. Whatever business you need to do with God as the band comes, whether it's turning away from sin yourself or today has been a wake-up call, you need to be a more serious evangelist, a more serious uh, heralder of the good news, then um, let's let the Lord do his work. Let's pray right now. Father God, come to you and we see the reality of your scriptures this morning and we believe it. It's hard for me to even wrap my mind around forever, much less forever punishment. And yet it's a reality that I know exists because you've told us it does. And it makes sense. It breaks our hearts, Lord, to think about people that we love being separated from you for for all of eternity. Being separated from us is sad, but there's nothing more sad than people being separated from you. And I pray, God, that we would be serious about kingdom work here at our church because we want to see people end up in the kingdom. I pray for Upward Basketball, Lord. We have um, over 250 kids involved in the program. We've got a bunch of families involved. About two-thirds of them don't go to church. They don't know you, Lord. They're lost. And Father, I pray that um, this upward basketball season, that our people uh, that are volunteering and that are coaching and that are sharing the gospel and that are making connections, 
Lord, would be effective evangelists and would take the opportunities to preach the good news. I pray we would take every opportunity to preach the good news to people in our lives. And Father, I pray that right now for those that are sitting here going, I couldn't preach the good news to somebody. I don't even know if I've received it. That today would be the day of salvation. And that they would hear the invitations and the warnings of Scripture. And that they would repent and they would put their faith in your son Jesus. And I pray, Lord, they would not wait. Glorify yourself through the preaching of your word this morning. Work in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would like to talk to someone and you're a little nervous about maybe coming up to one of us in person, then I also want to remind you, you can send us an email or you can text us at connect at seafordbaptist.com. If that just suits your personality a little bit more, that's fine. And we will get right back in touch with you. Let's stand up and let's sing together.